Welcome to That Anthro Podcast, the podcast dedicated to anthropology. Together, each week, we will be learning from the experts and researchers that are researching our pasts and today's problems. My name is Gabriella Campbell, and I'll be interviewing a new guest each week to bring to you the latest and greatest in anthropology, based right here out of Santa Barbara. Join me for weekly episodes, whether you're an anthropology buff or looking to learn something new. Welcome to That Anthro Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. All right, listeners, welcome back to That Anthro Podcast. Today we have Angelo Robletto. Did mm-hmm. I say it right? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yes. Welcome to the podcast. Right before we were talking about um, your transition from UNLV, which is University of Nevada, Las Vegas, to now you're going to be starting grad school in Ireland. So let's kind of just start with that. When did you find out about that? How are you feeling about the transition? Um, I just found out that I got in last Monday, so it's pretty recent. Wow, okay. Um, Yeah, it's a very quick, quick turnaround, and I have the next two months to pack up all my things in Las Vegas and move to Dublin, Ireland uh, at the end of August in order to start classes by September 5th, and I'll be there for a year, and then after that, I'm not exactly sure where I'll be. I, I could remain in Europe if I wanted to. I could come back to the States, but probably not to Las Vegas. So um, yeah, it's a pretty big, big jump in transition, but I'm really excited about it. It's a program that has been kind of at the top of my list for graduate schools for three or four years now. Um, So it's really exciting to be able to have this actually happen. That's really exciting. Congratulations. I can't believe you Thank just you. found out. I've known for so long now that I was, we were just talking about like the move and like packing all of, all of our stuff. The fact that you have this little time to prepare for it, I'm stressing for you, but I'm <laughs> sure that you'll be good. Um, yeah, that's part yeah. of the reason I kind of uh, had, like delayed scheduling this interview with you because I was like, I want to have good news to share and I want to yeah. wait until I find out from grad schools. Um, so then, yeah, uh, I found out and scheduled the interview the next day. That's so exciting. I'm really excited for you. And I don't, you might've already said, but it's an experimental archaeology program. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what are the professors that you're going to be working with? Uh, so the director, well, what makes this program so unique is that the school has an outdoor research lab space. That's essentially this cool. like sector of forest on uh, the outskirts of Dublin that they've um, kept foresty. And they encourage students to run different experiments out there. Um, So there are people doing things like casting bronze swords or doing a lot of flint napping or weaving baskets to as big of projects as entire classes uh, building medieval structures or Neolithic structures like houses and huts and things like that. Large multi-person teams uh, to build these things out of the materials in this forest um, using stone tools or whatever tools are appropriate for the time period they're trying to replicate. Um, and I, I mean, there's not many other schools that say they have anything like that. So, um, it's a Dr. Aidan O'Sullivan is the director of the program and kind of like the visionary for it. Um, and he's somebody that I've been like a Twitter stan of for a few years. Um, and that's kind of how I, I found the program because he was just posting these like most amazing pictures of what his students were, were building. And um, yeah, so that's, that's who I am going to work with. And I'm very excited to 
kind of utilize that space and learn all these different skills over the next year. It's kind of making me chuckle thinking like in the best way, thinking about a bunch of anthropology students in the forests of Ireland, just like recreating ancient life. I love it so much. Just yeah, so funny. It's, like I'm it's trying really, to imagine it. Yep. It's really awesome. Like I'm, I'm really excited. The first um, couple months of, of coursework is largely just really intensive kind of deep dives into a bunch of different technological horizons throughout human history. So we'll spend like a couple of weeks flint napping and a couple of weeks mm-hmm. doing pottery and basket work and a couple of weeks doing um, like groundstone work and then moving through a couple of weeks doing metal casting, a couple of weeks doing uh, larger structure building or leather tanning or cordage processing or weaving. And it's like, we just learn so all cool. these little skills throughout the first little bit and then are encouraged to kind of whichever one we're interested in um kind of take that further through research or stuff like that we'll get into it later but you have a lot of experience with atlatls which again we'll explain that term but have these other like basket weaving or pottery or flint napping have you done any of those things before where this would be like your first time um I've done quite a bit of flint napping so I I I mean no your listeners can't hear but I brought some some of the stuff that I've I've made but um and maybe you can post on on Instagram yeah I can but um, yeah, I've done a lot of flint napping. That's definitely, um, I did lithic analysis classes throughout my undergrad. Uh, I worked with Dr. Lisa Johnson a lot in my undergrad. She and her husband, Dr. Lucas Johnson, are like obsidian analysis masterminds. Uh, I met them on an excavation in Belize during my junior year of college. And then the following semester, um, Lisa got hired at UNLV. And then I was able to be like a student of hers in her lithic analysis and flint napping classes. Um, and then have maintained like a really good relationship with them. So um, they've definitely inspired me to like pursue lithics. And I have that background. I've done a tiny bit of pottery type stuff um, and cordage stuff, but nothing super serious. I've never worked with metal at all. So I haven't done any mm-hmm. casting or blacksmithing. So that aspect of it will be really new for me, but I'm, I'm very excited about it. Yeah. Um, and of course I've done, you know, lots and lots and lots of atlatls and archery yes. and like that type of stuff. Yeah. So let's just, we'll just dive into that. But first I want to, um, I know you've lived almost your whole life, if not your whole life in Las Vegas, correct? Mm-hmm. Awesome. So I, I think it's really cool because it's just, na- it's kind of a natural thing. It feels like the, the atlatl just kind of came to you like in such a natural way. Um, what, well, actually, let's define what an atlatl is first, because I'm assuming that people know what that is. I'll let the expert explain. And then I want to break down like your first time hearing about it, your first time making what you know, all that. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, okay, so an atlatl is a weapon that was developed during the Pleistocene by humans in many different parts of the world. Um, our oldest evidence of atlatls are in uh, France. But it is a small stick, maybe two feet long, with a hook on one end that is used to propel a spear or dart further than could be done by hand. Um, In essence, it is a lever. It is a simple machine. More importantly, it is one of the oldest simple machines we have evidence of. It is, um, in terms of a two-part complex or compound tool or weapon, where there are multiple components of this machine that are used to create mechanical advantage beyond the biological capabilities of a human. And um, this is one of the oldest examples we have of that. You can take an atlatl and hook it onto a spear and throw that spear three to 500 feet um, where you can only throw it by hand without the atlatl, maybe 20 or 30 feet. So you can really massively increase the amount of power and range and accuracy you can have um, with, with a projectile using an atlatl. And what's cool is that the physics principles behind the atlatl because it propels the projectile from behind the center of gravity the dart or spear has feathers as fletchings to stabilize it in flight it is front heavy it is springy um all of these small little engineering concepts that are required for the atlatl to work um we can see in later projectile weapon innovations later so Mm. the bow and arrow also propels the projectile from behind the center of gravity. The the string goes into the knock in the rear. It also uses feathers to stabilize the projectile. Projectiles are flexible, even though you can't see it as well with a naked eye. Arrows are flexible in the same way that atlatl darts are flexible for the same reason. Um, 
So you have a lot of these, this carryover between the two technologies. Um, and it's really cool to study kind of what may have been one of the first more complex technological innovations in human history. Yeah, it's an incredibly cool tool, weapon. Um, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, that it was really important in big game hunting because then they wouldn't have to get as close to the big game in the Pleistocene, correct? Right, right. And, and that's the, the case with any projectile weapon, right? The goal is to remain as far away from your prey as possible in order to stay safe. Um, mm-hmm. And the atlatl is able to achieve, I mean, like I said, you can throw an atlatl dart or spear three times further than you could hand throw um, a javelin or spear at, that, at a given accuracy level. And that allows you to take down Pleistocene megafauna uh, from a considerable distance, especially because the atlatl darts are so large, they can handle a pretty large stone tip. Um, so you can put a large obsidian or chert or flint um, broadhead type tip on it and propel it at 80 miles an hour, 100 feet away, 150 feet away towards the broadside of, a, of a, some sort of large ice age animal um, and take it down. So really was an incredible weapon for its time and still a lot of fun to use today. Um, as the earth warmed at the end of the Pleistocene and a lot of empty tundra became forested areas and animals went from being large, slow ice age megafauna to smaller, faster, more skittish deer, caribou and elk. Um, and as humans, because of that climate change transition from hunter-gatherer nomadic lifestyle to a farming sedentary lifestyle, you see more investment of resources and time into the development of bow technology, Mm. which doesn't pack as much of a punch as an atlatl, but the projectile travels faster and it requires less room or space to use because you don't have to swing this giant six-foot spear, Mm -hmm. um, which can be hard if you're in like a heavily forested area. So we see for a variety of factors, not just one factor, a transition from atlatls to bows um, around the time that a lot of other things happen for humans during like the Neolithic revolution. Uh, so it's a really interesting kind of time period to, yeah. to study and to kind of put yourself in the shoes of these people who had to use, not just use, who had to invent and then use such a weapon to survive. Yeah, but also difficult because it's primarily made of wood, which does not preserve in the archaeological record mostly. However, I'm assuming maybe atlatls have been found in really dry areas where wood preserves? Uh, Yes, so wooden atlatls have been found a lot in the American Southwest in the desert, um, which is kind of comes back to your point earlier about me being born and raised in Las Vegas. And I grew up exploring a lot of like the desert landscape uh I I love the desert like I could go on and on I think the desert is one of the most underrated and like beautiful biomes on the planet especially Mojave Desert where I live and uh just the southwest in general places like Utah and Nevada and Arizona um in Colorado are just kind of absolutely breathtaking Mm -hmm. in a way that I think some people don't fully appreciate because it's so dry and seemingly desolate but there are some amazing archaeological sites in the area um right outside Las Vegas, like 40 minutes from my house, is a place called Atlatl Rock at Valley of Fire State Park, which is where they have 4,000-year-old petroglyphs of basket maker mm-hmm. style atlatls way high up on a cliff that makes no sense how it got there. Um, in Arizona and Utah, you have places like White Dog Cave and Sand Dune Cave, where they have found fully intact wooden atlatls with finger loops. In fact, um, again, not something that you can, your, your listeners can see, but I have recreated, this is a sand dune cave atlatl um, that's a, a near perfect replica of the one they found out of the same materials uh, in, in Utah. And uh, a lot of that stuff has been preserved here. The oldest atlatls excavated were carved out of antler and found in, uh, France and are radiocarbon dated to 17,500 years. And I have a another exact replica of one of those, um, but this is a resin cast of the original. Oh. And, the, um, and this is the Le Madeleine Cave atlatl. And it was carved out of antler and it has beautiful, intricate carving. Yeah. Um, really, it's almost an art piece more than it is a utilitarian tool. 
Um, what's cool though is that they found multiple of this exact design, which makes it not only oh. the oldest atlatl we found, but also potentially Stylized. the oldest evidence of mass-produced art. Yeah. Um, and it the only the part that is antler was preserved and found, but we kind of have to guess that it was tied mm-hmm. to a longer stick in order to work as a, uh, to use as a handle. Um, but I like to have this one for kind of just to show people yeah. what, what it was like. Um, Do they have any guesses like what type of antler it was made out of? Like what animal the antler may have come from? Um, it was, if I remember correctly, it's caribou, but I, okay. I could be wrong about that. But I'm we like- can fact sure check it. And yeah, so they, they found multiple and, and not just multiple of this design, but multiple- of other types of designs, all made out of the same construction process and materials uh, that would have been used or, you know, similarly. What's interesting though, is that those are dated, like I said, 17,500 BCE, which would be very close to the transition, the bow transition. Oftentimes the date for atlatl use is pushed back further than that, Mm -hmm. even though that's the oldest evidence we have, like concrete evidence we have. Um, There's circumstantial evidence that bioanthropologists and Mm bioarchaeologists look at in the skeletal remains of people older than 17,500 years. Um, there's a specific arthritis type mm-hmm. ailment in a thro- the throwing elbow uh, that comes from using an atlatl. It's very similar to tennis elbow. And that wouldn't come from using other types of tools or weapons that mm-hmm. we, we theorize people had back then. Um, and we kind of know this because modern atlatl throwers like myself will exhibit very similar bioanthropological tells in our elbow that we use at laddles for a lifetime Uh, and the oldest or one of the oldest skeletons identified with this ailment is the mungo man skeleton in australia which is dated um to around 30 plus thousand bce um which would push back at lateral use much much further that's super interesting and um just like I love the skeleton that we can see that stuff I'm a bioarchaeologist so I love hearing about stuff like that um so all of these sites that you mentioned when did you start visiting them what was your first exposure to these sites that were literally like right in your backyard practically um in elementary school I've been interested in archaeology since like kindergarten uh, and first grade. I mean, I was obsessed with Egyptology. I spent a summer trying to learn hieroglyphs between like second and third grade. Um, And then in fourth grade, we have part of Nevada curriculum here is Nevada history. And we start from like a geological perspective, like Nevada history geologically, and then anthropologically, um, the various Native American groups that have lived throughout Nevada um, over the years. All right, shout out to Nevada education. I feel like we barely even talk about that in California. They're like, oh, the Chumash exists. You know, we're going to kind of like barely be like they're here. Yeah, and I I bet, I mean, that's probably similar to how Nevada, Nevada could probably do a lot better. But Mm -hmm. I I do think they did a a decently good job, or at least the teachers that I had um, Mm -hmm. in third, fourth, and fifth grade did a good job trying to explain that to us. And in the margin, in this Nevada history textbook, um, like those old school textbooks, they have like little fun facts in the margin, uh-huh. but they don't really, it's not like the meat of the lesson, right? There's like the lesson text. That's the actual mm-hmm. text of the, of the book. And then the margin has like little tidbits. And one of these little tidbits in a margin was like native Americans in Nevada used a tool called an atlatl to hunt bighorn sheep. And that's all it said. No picture, no explanation of what it was, how it worked, what it looked like. And then we went to on a class field trip, I think in fifth grade to atlatl rock Valley of fire. Valley of Fire is the name of the state park. Atlanta Rock is one area within that that's a popular tourist destination. Um, and that was kind of the first time that I, I could answer that question of like, what really is an Atlatl? And I became obsessed really quickly and spent that spring carving my first Atlatl out of like two by four and some wooden dowels and duct tape in the garage. Uh, my parents were always pretty supportive of me constructing stuff like that. That's just what yeah. I spent my time doing, just building things in the garage catapults and bows and atlatls and slings and just different stuff I love it um and yeah that kind of was my first exposure to both atlatls and then also some of the um indigenous sites around uh around Las Vegas there's also a place called the Springs Preserve here in the center of Las Vegas that is part historical preservation site part archaeological excavation site 
that's all right in the middle of town. Um, and they have done some like reconstructive and experimental archaeology type stuff. And we would do field trips there as a kid. Um, cool. And that definitely exposed me as well. So uh, it was, it was those, those experiences that really formed my interest in not just archaeology generally, but experimental archaeology specifically. Yeah. It's so funny. I had three questions. I was going to be like, when were you first introduced to atlatls? When did you first hold one? And when did you first make one? And it was all within the same, yep. <laughs> within the same time. And I love that. I think that's yeah. really cool. Once I decide that I'm interested in something, I kind of dive in uh, wholeheartedly uh, to an extreme degree. Like I said, I was like a second grader trying to teach myself Egyptian hieroglyphs for no reason. So I, I kind of- all of us anthropology about. students yeah. are. I've, yeah, that's the common thread of anthropology students that we all had these childhood, like interesting passions. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I would guess that the like Egyptology or Greek mythology pipeline mm -hmm. to anthropology majors is really strong. Like Oh, that. it's incredibly strong. Yeah. yeah. But it's so funny because I'm like any parent listening, if your kid is obsessed with collecting rocks and shells, is obsessed with Egyptology or is like trying to dig up stuff in your backyard. Like you're probably going to have an anthropologist on your hands. Like just yep. prepare yourself for it. Now you're going to have an anthropologist kid. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, definitely was the case 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 for me. Yeah. Aside from all of these archeological um, experiences growing up in Las Vegas, you mentioned you just like adore the desert. What are some of your other favorite things about your hometown or just like the desert, um, the Mojave desert in general? Um, I mean, Las Vegas is a pretty interesting and cool place to grow up. Yeah, uh, my family's been in Las Vegas, uh, since the fifties when Las Vegas was really small and from like an urban perspective, right. It's just like a really interesting city, like fun city. There's yeah. always something to do. There's mm -hmm. literally 24, seven, 365 days a year, nightlife entertainment. I mean, uh, thousands of restaurants, bars, shows, nightclubs, uh, anything you could possibly want to do, you could do here. Mm -hmm. uh, they try, they've attempted to recreate, we have entire hotel and resorts that have beaches built in their properties, right? <laughs> like they have attempted to provide every possible experience to anybody who wants to come yeah. to Las Vegas. Um, and Las Vegas geographically is in a valley, in a bowl, surrounded on all sides by mountains. So you could have these deserty experiences in the valley and have it be hot. But then in the summer, you can drive 30 minutes in any direction and be up in the mountains and it'd be 30 degrees cooler. And mm. in the winter, they have ski resorts. And like, you, you could have a full range of environments and experiences if you wanted, um, all within like a 45 minute drive of Las Vegas because of how uniquely it's situated geographically. Mm -hmm. um, but in terms of the desert, I spend a lot, I'm a very avid rock climber and I oh. Las Vegas and particularly Red Rock Canyon, which is on the West side of Las Vegas is a world-class rock climbing area. Um, I believe it's top five in the world in terms of most visited climbing destinations for, for climbers. And it's like top three in the country. Um, it's considered the best desert sandstone climbing in the world and attracts hundreds of thousands of visitors uh, solely for climbing, not for hiking, not for the casinos. Like Las Vegas is a hub for people coming to climb. And I, I know that. That's so 20, interesting. Yeah. And I get to live 20 minutes away from that. So um, like almost every, I, I climb like five days a week, uh, sometimes indoors, sometimes outdoors, and just have a rotating crew of friends that like to go out. Uh, and then in the summer, when it gets too hot to climb in the desert, we can go up to the mountains and climb mm. limestone. And there's like world-class limestone climbing just 30 minutes north of here. So um, the the variety that this sector of the desert offers is pretty, pretty cool. I think uh, other areas of the Southwest don't have as much variety. Um, I think Arizona is a lot of like, as much as I love Arizona and I spent a lot of time there, a lot of it is just like desert, 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 desert. Yeah. Um, it's pretty much only like up in the north by Flagstaff where you get the mountains. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, and then you like Utah, Utah's, I would say maybe the best. They have yeah. full range. I mean, obviously they have all the national, like so many national parks, more than mm -hmm. almost any other state um, between Zion and Bryce Canyon and uh, uh, Cedar Breaks and Snow Canyon, like really, really amazing areas. Not to mention like Moab and Arches and yeah. uh, 
but but yeah nevada and and las vegas is pretty cool plus nevada is like very empty it's it's one of the most uh really yeah like 80 percent of nevada <laughs> is empty federally owned land so wow. there's uh and there's 3.5 million residents in nevada maybe, maybe 4 million residents in nevada and like two and a half million of them live in las vegas and then there is if you drove from las vegas to the next like largely populated city it's seven hours of empty desert and then you hit Reno and Carson City, Nevada. And then that's where the other million people live. And then there's like a scattering of towns that have less than a few hundred residents throughout the rest of the state. And between those is literally just hours of empty desert driving. That's crazy. Um, yeah. I did a road trip during COVID um, in like summer 2020 because I was sick of being at home. Yeah. Like, I'm just going to take a solo camping road trip like through Nevada. And I just zigzagged through the state and there would be literal days go by where I don't see other people or go through other, wow. like kind of, kind of wild. Um, yeah. Not yeah, something you find... think about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I just like find different spots to camp in and, and there'd be nobody else around and then drive to another spot where there's no one else around to camp in. And uh, it was a really, really fun trip though. And, and made me appreciate the state a little bit more. Yeah. This is such a random question, but I'll preface it because I've been obsessed with um, this TikTok TikToker who catches snakes, like very safely, humanely, just like snakes that are in people's yards. He just puts them back out in, you know, into the wild so that it's just not in someone's yard um, or under someone's car or in their garage, et cetera. Um, have you seen any cool snakes in the desert? Um, I've seen rattlesnakes out here. Okay. Uh, that's, they're definitely, I mean, they're native to the area. Yeah. Um, not a ton though, uh, only in maybe two or three. I've seen one desert tortoise, uh, uh, which is cool. Um, the, the desert tortoise are our state reptile, uh, but they're really rare to see in the wild. Like this is some good bird watching in the desert. Mm. We don't have a ton of wildlife. It's more yeah. ge- like geological beauty. Like some of the craziest cliff sandstone cliff formations and canyons and desert washes. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen a couple like desert foxes and stuff. Um, mule deer. So cute. But um, yeah, it's a lot of like interesting desert plant life, especially like after we get a brief desert rainstorm and then like everything blooms for a couple of days. For example, there are these frogs and they will live in desert pools in Red Rock and they lay their eggs and in like mud and they kind of go into hibernation almost. And then Mm -hmm. they wait for the next rain and then the rain happens and they hatch, grow, reproduce, lay more eggs before everything dries up again. And like, that's their entire life cycle. And they're just waiting for the rain. Wow. And there's so much, so many plants and animals in the desert that will go into, and I don't want to call it hibernation. I don't know what the right term for it is, but some sort of like pause of stasis while they wait for rain. And then all of their biological and reproductive processes happen just in the few days or even hours that there is moisture in the desert um, because it's so rare. We get three inches of rain a year. And those three inches usually happen over the course of just a few days. So, you know, maybe 10 days of the year, it'll rain like a third of an inch each day. And then that accounts for the entire year's worth of rain. So everything out here is adapted to take advantage of just those few moments of rain throughout the year. Um, So you can have a totally different experience. You, You go hiking at Red Rock right after a rain it's like wildflowers everywhere because everything's yeah. moving really quickly. And then you go three days later and it's back to being hot and dry. And then it's back mm-hmm. to being brown and, and, and just cactus. Um, so it is, it is a really, really interesting place to live. Ireland sure is going to be an adjustment for you. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes. I'm already starting to uh, kind of stress about how wet and crazy it'll be. Um, I, uh, it'll be a huge, a huge adjustment, yeah. right? Because like they get... Yeah like 10 inches of rain mm-hmm. a month <laughs> here's the thing or, so or I grew crazy up, like that like I grew month. up in a coastal town in Oregon that gets like insane rainstorms and I split my time being here in California and it's really funny because when I'm in California I would say I complain more about the rain but that's because when you're in a place that like isn't built for the rain and you're not like wearing rain clothes like it's in it's uncomfortable right 
So my best advice is just to invest in some good rain boots and a good rain jacket and like honest and layers. Layers are key. Um, And you'll be fine because literally the only time that it's annoying is when you are not dressed appropriately. So it's like, you know, if there'll be like a random day, for example, you know, in California, it'll be like the middle of April, it'll be 90 degrees one day. And then the next day it'll be like raining and cold. And it's like, well, I just put all my winter clothes, you know, people are out in like Converse and it's like, yeah, that's when the rain is annoying. But I think if you just invest in some good gear, um, heat escapes from your feet and your head. So cover your head and your feet and you should be good. I think you'll be fine. Good to know. Good to know. Okay, that's the other thing. It's not just the rain I'm going to have to adapt to. It's the cold as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, what's interesting, though, and I didn't, I guess, fully realize about Ireland until I started researching when I was going to move, um, their variance between their hottest month and their coldest month is only in like 20 degrees, um, which oh, is kind of strange, me. crazy for me, because the variance between the hottest month yeah. and the coldest month in Las Vegas is about 90 degrees. Yeah. Um, so it actually won't be as bad temperature swing wise. Mm-hmm. as I expected but it'll still be like much cold on yeah. average much cooler, much cooler than I yeah. anticipated here but like the lows that we get here in Las Vegas are actually lower than the lows they get there oh um, really because well, really you're in a valley well because of the valley and also because they have they're on the coast right so they have the coastal oh. like the lake effect or whatever that's mm-hmm. called uh uh and that kind of keeps there and they're on like they get the benefit of the Gulf Stream right mm. that goes up through the yes. Atlantic so they they don't actually get super super cold, um, but something about the dryness of the desert and mm. the elevation of a mm-hmm. lot of the desert is is a little bit more elevated than people realize. So overnight temperatures in the desert, even mm-hmm. like in the winter, it could be seventy degrees during the day, but it can drop to like you know freezing overnight very yeah. easily. There just happens to be no water to freeze, so you don't. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. Um, I think that you're going to have to do like, um, whether, you know, some kind of video of when you're in Ireland and you're in the forest doing your experimental archaeology, because we all just, we all need to see that on Instagram. That's what we all need to see. Oh yeah. I'll definitely, um, keep my Instagram going, uh, steady while through my time in, in Ireland. And people keep telling me I should make a TikTok, but I, I kind Mm -hmm. of, I'm hesitant of, of getting sucked into another social media rabbit hole. So uh, we'll yeah. see. But but honestly, a new move and new change might be the perfect like natural start to a TikTok. Mm-hmm. Um, just start documenting moving to Ireland, and then that's doing what I'm doing. Archaeology in Ireland, like that might be just what I do. But I, I yeah. haven't decided yet. Yeah, that's what I'm gonna do because I already know that I'm gonna be hilarious. Like the first time it snows, the first time there's a storm, like I'm gonna be literally comical and I just need to document it so that the internet can see. Plus my dog too. Um mm. she likes the snow, but I just know there will be certain things that she'll be like, What the damn hell is going on? And she has such an expressive little face, like <laughs> so yeah but it's so fun like I love talking to everyone that's in this phase of our lives like it's so exciting and I'm really like proud I've just been talking to a lot of like undergrads that are transitioning to grad school recently and I'm so proud of all of us because gosh darn it is hard to apply to and then get into grad school during this pandemic time and it really is an accomplishment so we all really deserve like the credit of we did it you know Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and yeah um, during your, cause I know you took a year off after graduating. What have you been up to? That's a great question. A lot of <laughs> rock climbing, but, uh, in this kind of pseudo gap year, I guess I've been trying to do a lot of archeology span education stuff, um, mm. on my own. I guess I should clarify my long-term goal with this experimental archeology span masters is not academia or mm. research. It's education. So I want to be a museum educator and, I have, because of my atlatl background, I've been doing archaeology education outreach activities and workshops, summer camps, events for K-12 schools, museum groups, and university groups over the last five or six years. So since I was like a freshman in undergrad, um, I somehow just kind of created some positions for myself at places. Um, so there's like a private school here in Las Vegas that four or five years ago started doing this unit on the ice age with their second graders oh. and contacted me to bring in atlatls and talk about atlatls. And that's all it started. It was just me coming in for one hour, brought in some stone tools, brought in some atlatls. We threw some atlatls and that was it. 
And then the next year, they had me come back and expand. They wanted the kids to like learn how to make a coil pot. So we did that too. And then the fourth grade teacher was like, hey, why don't you come talk to our students during the Nevada history unit? And then the fifth grade teacher was like, why don't you come talk to our students during whatever, whatever. And then sixth grade and ninth grade yeah. world history classes, all at the same school. So each year it grew and grew until I was like developing week long, live like a caveman camps for second graders or fifth that graders. So cool. um, yeah. And, and talking to ninth grade world history classes about Mesoamerican archaeology, because that's also something I've done a lot of. And um, that kind of grew to where I had this general support staff position at this school for this past year, where sometimes I do these archaeology stuff, lectures, workshops. Sometimes I would just substitute teach if they needed help um, or run errands around the school because it's a pretty big school. And I've just been working there for the past year. Um, and then on the weekends, I've been doing volunteer workshops and camps with the Las Vegas Natural History Museum. So this Ooh. summer, I'm doing some archaeology summer camps, both at the school and at the museum, um, as well as kind of just packing up and, and moving, moving out, mm -hmm. right? But it's been a really interesting year because I got to work with little kids a lot, which I haven't done in the past. And I kind of realized that the biggest customer of a museum is an elementary school student. So mm -hmm. I wanted the experience of working with, and not just one grade, but one day I would be talking to second graders and the next day, fifth and the next day, and the next day, first graders and the next day, you know, whatever. And having to explain similar concepts to each of those groups of kids and make sure that they all come away with the same main idea of what I'm trying to get them to understand, but at different levels of detail depending on their uh abilities mm -hmm. so that was really fun and challenging and making sure that they all kind of got the same information without getting the same information so yeah. um it was a really good experience and I think it's going to serve me well in a future museum career it already has served me well doing my workshops at the Las Vegas Natural History Museum and if I didn't get into grad school then I would just be doing this for another year and then apply again yeah. next year but thankfully I got in so it was a fun yeah. one year experience but now off to the next thing some really good experience under your belt though I've done a little bit of that no, nowhere near the amount that you've done but it's it's every time I come out of it with a new perspective on how to communicate with younger audiences my mm -hmm. biggest thing that I'm trying to figure out is how to explain the difference in biological sex and gender when we're talking about skeletal remains to young children. Um, I haven't quite figured that one out yet. Yeah. Um, but just like when I do talk about osteology, I want to make it clear to students that um, just because I'm talking about male and female skeletons, like doesn't put them in those boxes just because, you know, I want to um, support, you know, um, gender nonconforming or um multiple gender identities, you know, at young ages. And so trying to do that through an anthropological lens is hard, but you're right. You know, the more you do it, the more you kind of, um, find ways, like you said, to get the information to them uh, at different le age levels. So yeah. I'm inspired by what you said, and I'm really interested in working in museums too. Nice. Nice. Yeah. I've done, um, I think close to like 150 at lateral workshops wow. lectures, or camps, uh, over the last five or six years um all over the country and virtually as well so it's been yeah. uh definitely a lot it's funny if you get me on a certain topic and I kind of just slip into a script even though I've never once <laughs> written out a script for any of my at level presentations I've just done them so often mm -hmm. I found the ways to phrase things the best yeah. and then we'll just kind of revert to that um but sometimes I'll catch myself I'm like oh my gosh I'm slipping into like lecture mode mm-hmm well, I'm sure people have told you this, but I need to tell you this, like, that is so incredibly impressive. And like, you have a bright, bright future ahead of you. I'm really excited to like, follow your journey and see, because truly when, you know, I mean, I'm not saying that we're young, but at this stage in our careers to be that focused and that, um, already developing skills that are going to help you later on, like, it's the best thing that you can be doing. So just like, all, all the props to you, like to take, you. <laughs> take, take it, you know, you deserve it. Um, and I'm really glad that you are also intentionally 
you know, doing things like podcasts and doing things that not just in your lectures is the information getting out, but you're doing it on a, on a larger scale. Um, how did it, how did the ologies appearance kind of come about? Because I mean, that is truly one of the like leading science communication it's, podcasts yeah. and it's yeah, Ali Ward is. Yeah. It's the huh? number one listened to science podcast in the world right now. So, oh my gosh. Yeah. I'm not surprised. Yeah. Um, Oh my gosh. Yeah. Ologies changed everything for me. That was, uh, that was huge. And like, I started listening to Ologies, uh, the summer, summer of 2018 and Ologies mm-hmm. had started coming out fall 2017. So I, I was just a little bit, maybe six months behind the, the curve. And, um, I was interning in Washington, DC and I had a lot of commuting time where I was like walking and metroing and busing and also just like sitting at a desk. And I listened to, I, I just like binged all the episodes that she had released at that point and I had tweeted like at Allie Ward uh I wish I could get my PhD in archaeology tomorrow so I could be her guest about atlatls or something to that Mm -hmm. effect and um she like within like minutes like retweeted the tweet and I was like oh okay cool and I kind of recognized that I could just I don't know weasel my way into her consciousness by tweeting Mm -hmm. at her sporadically so anytime I did any sort of atlatl or flint napping thing I would snap a picture and tag her in it and like tweet at her um and I, you know continuing to binge mm-hmm. the show as a, as a mega fan of the show um and we had kind of started talking even as early as then about having me on but at that point and, and still she kind of only has had master students or PhD yeah. like like people with PhDs or people within like a few months of finishing their masters like especially at that mm-hmm. point in the podcast that was the point of the show was interviewing yeah. those people um and I didn't I was a sophomore in my undergrad so yeah. I, I didn't conform or fit that at all um and it wasn't until I was elected to the board of directors for the world at Lattle association mm-hmm. that we kind of revisited and that was in 20 the end of 2018 or maybe 2019 um we kind of like revisited She's like, okay, now you kind of have this yeah. title that gives you more credibility than just, I've been making out labels for 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it kind of, tr- it kind of flipped. She started like heavily Instagram and social media stalking me versus the other <laughs> way around. Um, she, to the point where she would like, she was trying to reach out to some of my friends without me knowing to set up like a secret surprise pop-up interview, um, which That's didn't end cute. up working out because of COVID and stuff, but that was what her plan was she was her original plan was to just show up at my doorstep unannounced unplanned knock on the door with the hot mic and just on my front porch do this interview and she was coordinating okay. with my friends like to make that happen um I'm sad that didn't happen but also like that's the cutest thing I've ever heard I'm glad it didn't happen because I would have been so stressed the amount of prep that I did once I did get the interview mm-hmm. scheduled um in order to make sure that I knew my stuff uh was immense and if I didn't have that prep time I would have crumbled I think but eventually we after all of this back and forth Twitter Instagram DMing type stuff um we did this zoom trivia night thing mm. at the same time and met each other quote-unquote face-to-face during COVID and that was like July 2020 um and I don't think she was like she saw my name on the Zoom thing. She's like, Angela, are you like the Atlatl guy from Twitter that I've been following for the last two and a half years? I was like, yes, yes, I am. And um, we kind of set up the interview then and talked for two hours and she cut it, for two and a half hours, she cut it into like an hour and 45 minutes. I, and this is like secret, because so many people have been like, oh, you like knew all your facts and stuff. It's like, I did, but I also heavily pre- prepared. I had a 20 page document with citations for anything that I thought she might ask me, as well as looking on the Patreon ahead of time and seeing all the questions listeners sent in, because I knew that she was somewhat putting the credibility of the podcast on the line by having me on as an undergrad student. And I didn't want to mess that up. So I did an immense amount of prep and research just to make sure that I had all of my ducks in a row so that nobody could say, oh, you invited this person on who then didn't know mm-hmm. what they're talking about. So uh, I, I kind of had a guess at what she might talk about and ask and, and prepare all research and answers and citations for that. And then did the interview and it was amazing. And like overnight, 
my social media profiles kind of blew up yeah. and, and um I mean it had like a few hundred thousand downloads in the first week uh which is pretty crazy and wow as yeah. of like podcasting like puts out episodes the idea of having like in case anyone was wondering I don't get that but like the idea of several hundred thousand downloads wow that's incredible yeah and to this day it's now been over a year and a half because it was mm -hmm. the episode came out August I think August 2020 um so it's been like a decent amount of time yeah I'll get a new DM request mm -hmm. just about every day from somebody who's yeah. like hey I started listening to Ologies at the beginning like the first episode and I finally mm -hmm. got to your episode and just wanted to reach out and be like such a cool episode excited to try, try atlatls you're so passionate about archaeology or whatever but it's crazy that I'm still getting yeah. people who are finding the episode now mm -hmm. and reaching out to talk about it um all of these you know months later like 18 plus months later I think that's my favorite thing about podcasts is that they don't exist in a bubble of the time that you post them like they're there I guess forever, I guess if we think about the next 20 years, like I guess they're there forever, right. but it's, it's so much, for example, it's like, if a show comes out, you know, um, it has like the media and the whatever at the time that it's published. And then that just like kind of drops off and it's like, Oh, if you find it on Netflix, like that's kind of a personal like journey, but with podcasts, it's really just this interesting dynamic. Um, how does it feel when you get DMS? Because when I get DMS, it's like my favorite thing on earth. And I'm like, I will, I will help you with whatever I can. I will talk to you about anything. Like, I don't know. It's just so fun. Oh yeah. I'm definitely the same way, especially because so few people like, because of that podcast, the number of people who like know what an atlatl is has probably exponentially grown. Um, yes. the atlatl community was like tiny and non-existent. I would meet other anthropology and archeology span people who had never seen or thrown an atlatl they may have read about one in the textbook in their anthropology or archaeology 101 class but like that's it um so that was what was most important for me was just spreading that knowledge so anybody who dms me is like hey i want to learn more about atlatls or talk about atlatls or make my own or buy one like yeah. help me do that i'm more than happy to facilitate that for them um and i've also met some really amazing like fans of the show who are other anthropology or archaeology minded people um who have become really good friends who i've gone to yeah. visit like like last uh or who have come to visit me um some amazing mackenzie and joe they're geologists in illinois who decided to host me for the atlanta world championships because they heard me on the podcast we're like oh. and i had no way to go because of variety of travel things I'm like hey we'll pick you up from the airport we'll provide you a place to stay um we'll hang out with you at the tournament and we just so want to like hang out and they just were listeners of the show and we're fans and reached out and like this whole thing happened and now we're really good friends and um it really really is amazing like the people I've I've met yeah. and, and friends I've made through the show yeah I feel the same way I have made some really good friends through the, through either social media or that people that have been on the podcast that's exciting I'm low-key planning a trip to Las Vegas in July and now I'm like will you be there in July I'll I'll be here. I'm working, uh, July is the only month this summer where I'm not traveling. Okay. So I'll be here the whole month. I'm, uh, well, if July 21st, I'm teaching an Atlanta workshop at the museum. So you could like stop by for that for sure. And if not, we can set up a, a various <laughs> different Atlanta thing. My, the wheel, the cogs in my brain are like, how can I, how can I throw an Atlanta? Cause that would be so cool. I would love to throw an Atlanta. Are you kidding oh, yeah. me? hundred percent. When you, if you come in town, we'll set that up. That's no problem. Yeah. So I'm now I'm going to try to make that work because, um, my best friend and I really want to go to Vegas before, um, I leave for grad school and oh you guys might God. be the only tourists that come to Las Vegas to throw out lattos instead of like gamble or, <laughs> if, well, yes, we were going to go to, to do the whole, you know, I, I drink think. gamble thing. However, <laughs> um, I'm probably going to be the one driving anyway, so I can just like drive my, cause I'm going to be honest. I don't know if anyone's going to want to come with me to throw out lattles, but <laughs> I definitely want to. Yeah. Um, well, if you guys but, need a, a broader Las Vegas entertainment guide, uh, I'm happy to be of service. Yes. I, I oh know this pretty well. Yeah. I wish we already knew the dates, but it's my friend. Um, she, we had like an exchange program in our high school. And so she's had this like family that she literally, like they lived with her. She lived with them in Germany, like a bunch. Okay. And so they're coming to visit again. And so we're kind of just like, they want to do all the things. So we're trying to plan out like when we're going to do all the things um, like, you know, Disneyland and they want to go to Yosemite. And so we have to kind of yeah. figure it out, but 
I definitely think it's going to happen because, you know, like I said, I'm going to be moving to Virginia and I don't really imagine myself coming back to the West Coast. I could, but I don't necessarily think that that's in, in the right, watch right. me like later end up on the west coast and listen back to this just because <laughs> you know life is so unpredictable that we never know yeah and just because you don't see yourself back on the west coast in the next like five to ten years doesn't mean yeah. that, you know 10 to 20 years sure. you don't find yeah. yourself back here um, i just yeah, definitely been... don't think i'll live in california no no not yeah. a fan I, I definitely wouldn't mind like being an educator at the LA Natural History Museum or the San Diego Museum of Us. Those are like yeah. some two that are top of my list, but I also don't want to have to like living in California is so yeah. expensive. It's yeah, it's expensive and it's just like there's I'm not gonna like don't wanna like boohoo California because I'm very like thankful and like lucky to live here and I love UCSB. It's more just like general generally I don't think I am a California person, mm-hmm. even though I mostly grew up here. Um, I think I'm like wired as kind of like an East Coast person. I'm just more like go, go. It's so laid back here. Like you just have to understand that like, even the way people drive just every day, I'm like, I've talked about this so much on the podcast in the last couple of weeks. People are, I'm going to have to cut this out because people must be (laughs) so tired of hearing me complain about the drivers in California, but I just, I can't anymore. Anytime we see bad drivers in Las Vegas, we joke that they're from California. They probably are. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. 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 Um, Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I like to end my episodes just briefly giving you the opportunity if there's anything you want to expand on, any last things we want to talk about, any question you have for me, you know, just kind of like a last opportunity before we end off. Um, Well, thanks for having me on. This was really fun. Of course. Yeah. Um, I guess people can find me on Instagram, um, which I'm sure you'll tag in the various and stuff. I have always have everything in the description below I'll have your ologies episode um anything else you want me to put I don't think you have yeah, a website or anything I don't have a website but okay. if um you can find the world at Lattle association oh world at lateral.org um Ooh. also you can find them at world at Lattle association on Instagram uh, or Facebook so awesome. if you are interested any listeners to finding the closest at Lattle event or tournament or anything <laughs> to you um, that website has everything. It has like master calendar internationally of people throwing at ladles, uh, awesome. where they're doing that and when. So, so cool. Yeah, that definitely check that website out. Uh, and then ologies, Instagram. Yeah, I think that's pretty much pretty much it for me. 